Hello, everyone. Welcome to Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. You're listening to Episode 9, Season 4, and we've got a very special guest today. We're honored to host the 37th Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Robert Neller, to talk about Force Design 2030. We discuss the frequency of structural change within the Marine Corps, the General's dislike of the term near-peer, vertical versus horizontal cuts in force structure, the removal of scout snipers from Marine Infantry Battalions, and more. Here's the General's bio. A native of East Lansing, Michigan, General Neller graduated from the University of Virginia and was commissioned in 1975. He served as an infantry officer at all levels, including command of a rifle platoon, weapons platoon, and rifle company in 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, Marine Security Force Company Panama during Operations Just Cause and Promote Liberty, 3rd Light Armored Infantry Battalion during Operation Restore Hope, 6th Marine Regiment, and 3rd Marine Division. General Neller also served as the Deputy Commanding General, 1 Marine Expeditionary Force Forward during Operation Iraqi Freedom 2005-2007, Assistant Division Commander of the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions, President of Marine Corps University, Commander of Marine Forces Central Command, and Commander of Marine Forces Command. General Neller became the 37th Commandant in September 2015. His joint assignments include serving in the Policy Division of Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, SHAPE, in Castel, Belgium, and is the Director of Operations J3 of the Joint Staff in Washington, D.C. General Neller is a graduate of the Armor Officer Advanced Course, Marine Corps Command and Staff College, NATO Defense College, and the Armed Forces Staff College. He holds a Master's Degree in Human Resource Management from Pepperdine University. I found this conversation insightful, eye-opening, and thought-provoking, and I hope you do too. And now, our conversation with General Robert Neller. Sir, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you. Thanks uh, for the opportunity to be with you. As we discussed offline, I'd like to focus our conversation on Force Design 2030, a subject of great controversy. My goal today is not to impugn or criticize the Marine Corps' senior leaders or the critics of Force Design, but to bring some clarity to the conversation, which I think has generated far more heat than light lately. So with that in mind, let's get started. From my reading and discussions with Marines, the experiments that inform Force Design 2030 go back to at least 1997 during General Krulak's tenure. Things start to pick up steam with General Amos and his Expeditionary Force 21. They continue during General Dunford's tenure as Commandant and really get going during your Commandancy with the Marine Corps Operating Concept, or MOC, and Marine Corps Force 2025. Do I have that all right? Does that is that is that an accurate recounting of how we've gotten to to force design? I think everybody has talked about what you would call uh, distributed operations, and I think that was a recognition of the capabilities that technology was going to give the force, particularly in the ability to communicate down to lower level. You know, I remember used to be the digital divide. You know, where you had some digital capability was at major subordinate commands and then it gradually worked down to regiments or groups in the around the turn of the century then the whole thing got expedited during the fights in afghanistan and iraq so you were able to push down you know large amounts of data at least a battalion and depending upon if they were in stationary forward operating base to companies and even platoons and so this idea that you could sustain and provide fire support and logistics and other capabilities to smaller units dispersed across the battle space, maybe not as mobile as we would have liked, but that's been going on for some time. 
So this, you know, distributed operations is, is something the Marine Corps has been looking at. And it, it goes back to, I would guess, General Krulak in the 90s when he came out with his guidance. And there were a bunch of experiments about how to do that. And so we are where we are now. And obviously the capabilities are much greater, particularly the communications, if you can sustain it. I mean, I think that's the the critical capability and the critical vulnerability is can I sustain my link to manage the data, to get the data and manage the data that I need to fight. In general terms, how does your observations of Force Design 2030, what the Marine Corps is undergoing now, how much of that aligns with your vision with the mock and Force 2025? And to what degree, if at all, does it differ? Well, I think you read the mock and it's always interesting when people publish your own words as part of their idea. So we wrote very early, I think it's like the second paragraph, the kind of the problem statement was, Marine Corps is currently not organized, trained or equipped to fight a peer adversary in the year 2025. So that was written in 2016. And here we are in 2023. And back then, remember, people wouldn't even go up and testify and they would not even recognize other potential adversaries as peers. And then over time, they started to call them near peers. And now they're clearly calling uh, you know, some of these nation states peer adversaries because of their capability. So it, it, it's taken some time. And then you had the National Defense Strategy of 2018 written by then Secretary of Defense Mattis and his team, which basically came out and said, you know, this, these are the threats that we face. And they named particular adversaries. And they even gave the services particular focuses. And they gave a focus to the naval force to focus on, uh, you know, the Chinese. And he told the army, the continental force, to focus on Russia. And then he told the air force and the special operations community to focus generally on supporting the combatant commanders in potential fights based on their convoy. So when you get specific guidance from the Department of Defense and from the secretary, which has been continued through into this current administration. So you go, okay, so you're telling me you want me to focus on this particular threat, not at the exclusion of others, but focus on this particular threat. And I don't remember previous in my career where we, maybe during the Reagan years when everybody was focused on the former Soviet Union and General Gray, well, General, actually it was General, General Barrow, reorganized the Marine Infantry Battalion to fight against a heavily mechanized anti-armor threat. You know, we went and we bought tows. You know, you may, you probably don't remember that. We had a tow battalion in each division. It's 144 tow vehicles. Every infantry battalion had 32 Dragon teams. So this was all done in, in General Barrow. We bought light armored vehicles. We went up to... Uh, we had three tank battalions when uh, the Desert Shield, Desert Storm started, because even though the, the wall had come down in 1989. So we reorganized the Marine Corps to fight a very specific threat, just like we reorganized the Marine Corps to fight the threat that we faced in Vietnam. You know, we used to have eight-inch self-propelled artillery. We had 175 self-propelled artillery. We had 155 self-propelled artillery. We had an organization called Force Troops that owned all this heavy artillery because it was a it was needed to, to do a very high firepower fight in Vietnam. At least that was what the leadership thought then. So this is not anything new to, to reorganize the force 
to face a specific threat, which in this case, we've been directed to do so by the last two administrations. So the discussion that really to me is, okay, how much of this do you do to face this specific threat and how fast do you do it? So that's the discussion to me. We could just backtrack for a moment. You mentioned, you know, the terms peer, near peer. My understanding is you've never been a fan of the term near peer. Could you just talk a little bit about why that's the case? Based on the the jobs I've had, the billets I've had, and the opportunities to see the information that I've seen, I felt that we were slow to grasp the recapitalization or the creation of military capabilities by both the Chinese and the Russians. I mean, this is not just something that happened recently. It's been going on since probably 2005 to 2010, where it really started to accelerate. I mean, it almost ties exactly to our economic engagement with the Chinese, where they were able to take that money and you know not recapitalize because they didn't have anything. They basically took a very large land-based foot army and turned it into a modern force. And they did that through you know some espionage to gain secrets of, of the certain U.S. military capabilities. And the Russians had a very strong defense industry, and they reorganized into battalion combat teams, and they watched what the army did with the brigade combat team. And the rest, you know, the U.S., we were focused, probably overly focused, on the fights in Iraq and Afghanistan and the counterterrorism fight, which is understandable when you look back based on the huge impact of the events of 9-11. So I guess I believed early on that that these two nation states were as potential adversaries, you know, that were rapidly increasing their capability to the point where, you know, they were developing a significant capability. And at the same time, you have this huge increase in technology and the development of data and information in the information space and the proliferation of communication satellites in space and on and on and on. And you know, the United States, after the Gulf War, the revolution of military affairs, we were kind of unchallenged in this domain. Mm-hmm. And people watch, people learn, they pay attention because the United States was kind of one of one, even though the, both the Chinese and the Russians have nuclear weapons, as do other nations. So, you know, did we take our eye off the ball? We were busy and they were not. And, you know, we can't, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. we can't look back and undo what we were involved in and what we did uh, and the changes we made to our own force to fight the fight that we were in. Mm-hmm. And the army got rid of the large amount of their artillery and their air defense, their, their mobile ground air defense. Now they need that stuff back. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps, after the Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we got we used to have Hawk batteries. We had Hawk battalions. Those are all gone. Uh, we're back, you know, we're down to a couple of light air defense units. and. Now we're looking at buying Iron Dome or some sort of form of Iron Dome to give us a capability to defend ourselves, regardless of where we go, mm-hmm. against you know indirect fire and uh, missiles and uh, and aircraft. So you know things change, situation changes, and you know your your focus. You know it's it's hard to stay focused on the main thing when you've got other things going on around you. But that's what you're supposed to be able to do. So I wanted to bring in a a quote from the May 2018 Marine Corps Association and Foundation Ground Awards Dinner. It's a quote from you. You'd spoken about changes to the ground combat element. You said, quote, and we've looked at the battle space. We've looked at what we think the future operating environment is going to be, and we've made some decisions. Are they all going to work? 
Are they all going to be right? Most likely not. But if we're 80%, I'll declare victory and go home a happy Marine. So what are we talking about? You go on to say, I'll just share one other point. One of the assumptions, one of the principles in this whole thing is that whatever we do has got to be reversible. We got to be able to walk ourselves back out of this. Can you just give some commentary or reflections on, on those comments, you know, the thought process behind them, and perhaps you know, how your thoughts then maybe play into the Marine Corps' recent force cuts and the divest to invest strategy? Well, a commandant, like any service chief or any service secretary, has a checkbook. And you can buy four things. You can buy people. You can pay for maintenance and training. You can pay for procurement of new systems, or you can pay for facilities. Those are the four areas. And for the Marine Corps, the biggest block is people. About 65 to 70% of the green budget the Marine Corps get goes to pay for people. And so if you believe that you have structure that's duplicative or you're overinvested in something or you want to buy something new, you're probably not going to get any more money. So you have to, you have to change it. You either got to take money away from those other three bins or if you're going to get a budget cut, you know, I think several years ago, as we withdrew from Iraq and Afghanistan, I think everybody thought there was going to be significant defense budget cuts. Russia's invasion, illegal invasion of Ukraine has clearly changed the climate about defense budgets. But General Berger has said, rightfully, hey, I'm not going to ask for any more money. We're going to do this on the budget I get. Because he needs more money because the force is becoming ever increasingly expensive the all-volunteer force, then that's a whole other subject, and I'm not going to bring that up here, but it is becoming more expensive. So if you have a, a checkbook and you can buy so many people and you need people to do something different, then you got to have people that are doing something else go into that area to do something different. So you have to make changes. Okay. And there's two ways to do that. You can cut whole units, what I would call vertical slices, or you can cut horizontally. You can take the units you have and make them smaller, and then capture that structure savings and put it into these other new units. And this is nothing new. I mean, leadership has been doing this. I remember I was the G3 for 2nd Marine Division in uh, 2000, 2001, and, and the commander of Marine Forces Atlantic, Mar Forlant, said, hey, I want you to do a study of all the battle space functions of the Marine Corps put them against the con plans that exist for the COCOMs and tell me where we're over-invested and where we're under-invested. So you look at maneuver, fires, intel, which would include ISR, command and control, logistics, and force protection. And we did that. And where we were thought we were over-invested was in uh, fires. We had too many fires and you had ground and air fires. And where we were under-invested in was intel collection and ISR, and the only ground thing we think we would thought we were underinvested in was engineering. So this was before 9-11. So, you know, there's that was a very useful drill. And I never forgot that drill because you had to look at where you thought you had enough capacity and where you were short. So as we move into a world of post-OIF, OEF, or at least an OEF where we were down before the withdrawal to, you know, 2,500, 4,000 people. So what do you what do you need? What did we need? And the, and we had five priorities, and I think they're similar today: long range precision fire, ballistic missile and air defense, or counter battery defense, contested logistics, protected maneuver, and reliable residual 
replenishable command and control. And so if those are your priorities, starting with long-range precision fires and ballistic missile, counter-battery fire, air defense, we didn't have a lot of that. We had some HIMARS that we had added. And so we started to make changes, started to add more HIMARS. We started looking at different systems that would give us protection against enemy missiles and air defense and UAS. I mean, swarming UAS is a huge problem and it's going to be a huge problem. And you know, I would say there's been progress made, but not to the degree that we need to make that progress. Mm-hmm. And so how do you create this space? How do you how do you create the structure that you need to build these new units? How do you time out the procurement of the systems that you need to give you these capabilities? And so we started on that path and we had a plan based on how much money we thought we were going to get and how much end strength the Marine Corps was going to have. And there were puts and takes. And this was balanced against the, the idea that, well, you know, the Marine Corps has always been a balanced force. We need to sustain some level of uh, a balance throughout the MAGTAF. We've got to be able to do other things because the United States has done one thing right, and that's guess wrong every time about what the next fight's going to be. So you always kind of keep yourself in a residual place where I can, okay, I'm going to be able to flex and be able to do other things. So we made some changes. You know, we went to 11-person squad, 11-marine squad. We uh, did some other things. We had plans if we were able to buy unmanned aircraft, like we're buying Predators. We started buying Predators, or actually leasing Predators, but now we're going to own our own. You know, we were going to give up some attack helicopter capabilities. So there was a plan. And I think that's what the current leadership has done. They've decided, they've decided, you know, that in order to make the structure space, they need to do these new capabilities. They were more aggressive in how they would do the cuts. And some of their cuts were vertical as opposed to horizontal. And that was their decision to make. And I'm sure it was not made without consultation with a with the civilian leadership of the Department of the Navy and the Department of Defense. So that's really what we're talking about here. Uh, We're talking about today, right now, one regiment that has become now a Marine littoral regiment, 3rd Marines, that just went to 29 Palms and did an exercise to test out their concept. There apparently is another one planned in the off years. Whether that one is actually created or not remains to be seen. The discussion is, you know, should we have kept more armor? Should we have kept more towed artillery? Those are good and worthy discussions. I will say that based on the original plan that the General Berger and his folks have walked back some of the things that they originally said, they've increased the size of the infantry battalion. They've gone back, added some ar- some artillery batteries. They've done some other things. But some other things that they cut are cut. They didn't put them in the reserves. And some of those are capabilities that the Marine Corps and the Joint Force were always pretty short of, like engineering and bridging. And so there's kind of the, the, the friction points. I understand why they did what they did. We all have our thoughts on, you know, whether we would have done the same thing. That's really mildly interesting. I think historically, Marines have supported the decisions of the Commandant and and done their very best to make it work. Most of the people I talk to out there understand where we're headed. And I, I do think, you know, this is not irreversible if the decision is made to go back. I mean, at one time, another commandant was going to take us to 21 infantry battalions. And the leadership was able to walk that back. 
And remember now, the 24th Infantry Battalion, which I think was 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, didn't get re recreated and put back on the force list until like 2018. Mm. So this is an iterative thing that's been going on for years. And I've got enough confidence in the people that are leading our Marine Corps that, that they'll figure out, you know, what where is the right balance point for all this. I mean, the, the tank thing, which is, you know, kind of the, the poster child that people want to talk about. There was a commandant many years ago, and I told you this earlier, who wanted to get rid of tanks. Right. And he was talked off of that position. And I think now looking back now, that was a good decision he made to not get rid of tanks. But this discussion is going on all the time. I mean, the Marine Corps, you know, if I showed you that I was a Marine for 44 years, if I just looked at artillery and where we've been and what we've done with artillery over the years, I mean, it's it's pretty significant. 05s, 155s, eight, you know, 5.5 five self-propelled, 8-inch, 175. And then we went, got rid of everything. We went to uh, M19 or 8s. And then we went to 777s. And then we added HIMARS. And now we're going to add Naval Strike Missile to these units. We went to Expeditionary Fire Support System. And, you know, on and on and on. We, you know, Marines have shot four deuces. They've shot 81s. They shot 60s. We've had dragons, we've had toes, now we got javelins, we had eight javelins, now we got 12 javelins, we'll probably go to more javelins. I mean, we're always changing. We got, we had the the small, now we've got the Carl Gustav. Mm -hmm. We're always trying to get better. And so there, I mean, I think there is some understandable discussion about some of the capabilities that were cut vertically off the force list. And the reason I said what I said at the ground dinner was, you know, I, and I'm a proponent of, of horizontal cuts, making units we have smaller. Because once you cut a flag, that lieutenant colonel, battalion, or squadron commander took us, you know, 14, 15, 16 years to build. And once that's gone, and all the comm and all the H&S company and the headquarters battery and all that, and, uh, you know, the MAL support, once that's gone... At the top, it's very. It, it takes a lot longer to bring that back than it does if you just go from say to eight to six to four tubes in an artillery battery, or five. We used to have five tanks in a platoon, and we went to four tanks in a platoon. And we talked about going to three tanks in a platoon. The Israelis have gone to two tanks in a platoon. So those are different ways of looking. Of, but no matter how you do it, you've got it. There had to be change. There had to be change in order to meet the requirements that the defense department in their strategy put on the Marine Corps. In you, my view. You reference cuts several times and some of the subjects of those cuts with tanks being the poster child. I'd offer, I think snipers have become the new poster child. That seems to be something that everyone's riled up about. I'm curious, what's your response? What are your thoughts on getting rid of that capability inherent to Infantry battalions. I know there'll still be snipers in recon battalions or still be snipers in MARSOC, but my reading of things is that we're not going to have scout snipers with. Well, we're going to have a scout platoon, as I understand it. There'll be a scout platoon in the infantry battalion. Hmm. They have the precision shooting capability. I, I don't know enough about the decisions that have been made. Sure. And the Marine Corps had snipers and we got rid of snipers and we brought them back and then we got rid of them and we had them again. I mean, there used to be. In an infantry battalion, when I was a company commander, it was called the Stay Platoon, mm -hmm. Surveillance Target Acquisition Platoon. 
And they had, we had ground sensor platoon at the battalion level. This was an outgrowth of Vietnam. We had a surveillance platoon. They had these giant passive night observation devices that today are basically obsolete because of the thermal and IR capabilities we have. And we had snipers, but they were mostly scouts. They were scouts. I mean, so there's going to have to be some residual capability to retain snipers for MARSOC and for recon. You know, the field craft that snipers learn is really, I'm not diminishing the requirement and the skill it takes to shoot a, you know, a stationary target or a moving target at 500 to 1,000 meters and the optics and all that and the maintenance. I wasn't part of that decision. Again, I'm sure it was looked at. I'm sure it was talked about. I'm not sure that it created a lot of space structure-wise if you're going to keep a scout platoon at the battalion because we used to have, what, eight sniper teams in an infantry battalion, the sniper platoon. And the snipers are, they provide that level of command, you know, scouting and patrolling and reporting is really what they do. You know, and when we were in a counterinsurgency, they had the ability to go in and, and occupy a hide position and stay somewhere for a long period of time because they weren't, the adversary didn't have a way to surveil them or find them. That might not be the case in future things. So we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. But it's not like we got said, there's going to be no more snipers in the Marine Corps. As long as we keep our residual capability to teach and train and create the capability to have the expertise, I think if we want to bring it back, we can bring it back. And I do believe that the weapons, there still be a precision shooting, but it takes training. You know, the idea, you know, we want every infantry Marine to be as capable as they can be. Mm -hmm. But at some point, there's a certain level of expertise involved in being an infantryman, being an assault person or shooting the Carl Gustav or being a machine gunner or being a mortarman. And, you know, we just can't wake up and I go, hey, hey, Damien, I, I should carry the machine gun today. I don't feel like carrying the machine gun. You know, I, I think I want to be the Carl Gustav guy today. I mean, it's like I used to go to ITX and watch the Marines do 400. And they're walking around and like, who wants to shoot the law at the target? I'm like, what are you doing? The best run of range 400 I ever saw, I won't say his guy's name, he's a retired colonel. I won't say, say what infantry battalion he was in. But I mean, they went out there and I, I used to give a class on range 400 to units that were going to, to 29 Palms. And I go, look, go out to the range, figure out who you want to shoot the laws and practice and find out who can shoot it because some guys can and some guys can't. And then when you get out there, don't let anybody just figure out who your best law shooters are. And everybody else just carries the law and they shoot all the laws. And this guy's company went up there and they just, every time they fired a law, it's like, boom, hit the target, boom, hit the target, boom, hit the target. And I got done. I watched it because I used to walk every run with every company when I was out there as a regimental commander. And I said, that was the best run I've ever seen. You guys, you shacked every target with the laws. How did you do that? He goes, well, sir, you said go to the range and have everybody shoot and find out who my best shooters were, and then don't let anybody else shoot. That's what we did. I said, well, it's brilliant. Thank you for being the only person to ever listen to me about this. So, you know, I, I think it's great that Infantry Training Battalion is now 78 days, and everybody's going to get exposed to all these weapons. Remember, now, there wasn't going to be a weapons platoon. And the commandant walked that back because right. there was a lot of discussion and he listened to his leaders. Hey, we need a weapons platoon. Mm -hmm. You can't just wake up and say, hey, I feel like that nah, machine gun's too heavy. I don't want to carry the machine. You know, somebody's got to be on that weapon because it takes 
a level of expertise. And anybody that's ever been in the infantry knows that. So will there be an impact by getting rid of people that don't do sniper stuff every single day? I'm more concerned about the field craft that we might lose because our field craft right now, because of what we've had to do the last 20 years, we haven't had to do field craft. Our field craft is not good. Our camouflage is not good, even though we we're buying capabilities to give us a significant capability to reduce our signature. We just got to figure out how to use it and that it's there. So I'm worried about the field craft as much, if not more than I am about the precision shooting. Understood. Thank you for all your comments on that, sir. Do you think that critics outside observers have not given the commandant enough credit for walking things back, for saying, okay, we thought this, it's not gone in the direction we wanted, or we overestimated, underestimated, let's take a few steps back. Do you think that has been lost in the din of discussion around Force Design 2030? To some degree, I would say yes. I also don't think that the institution has been as aggressive as they could have in going out and saying, hey, we listened to what you said and we've made these changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we went back and added some more Osprey squadrons, although the PAA of aircraft went down. Okay. I think that was a good decision. It was a great decision because it's a lot easier to add airplanes and crew than it is to add a squadron commander and a staff. So that's my that's my personal belief. You know, I like, say, okay. Keep the keep the flag and make the unit smaller. I can always train more people and flesh out the unit later. I mean, in World War II, Marine Infantry Battalions had four companies of 220, 230 people simply to absorb the casualties of the island fighting. That's why they did that. Mm -hmm. We also had, you know, six infantry divisions. And, you know, at the end of the war, there were 400,000 Marines. And by the time Korea broke out, we were down to 75,000. So the, the force is going to ebb and flow. But yeah, I, I think both sides should have been a little more, hey, I heard what you said. And I think that's probably maybe what's missing is, as you mentioned, I think it's kind of become kind of a people kind of talking past each other a little bit. I was going to ask if you'd be willing to just comment on the conversation. I, I hesitate to call it a debate because of, I think, how personal and toxic it's gotten. But what are your thoughts on the back and forth or or lack thereof on force design? And as a follow-on question, you know, how does it compare to the debate that you witnessed on maneuver warfare? The Marine Corps has always been a meritocracy and the best idea wins. And there's always been vigorous debate about all sorts of things. And I think that's good because at the end of the day, you need to hear all sides of the view to make the best decision. And I'm not part of this discussion. I observe it like you do. So I don't know how much the other one group or the other is listening or exchanging or acknowledging change or whatever, I, or even acknowledging, you know, and, and one side said the Marine Corps is focusing on one threat. I'm not sure that's true. And then the other side wants the Marine Corps to remain the kind of the flexible Marine Air Ground Task Force able to fight across the range of military operations, you know, scale up and scale down. Okay, I agree with that too. But at the same time, there's a very specific threat out there we've been directed to focus on, and you need to have some specific capabilities like anti-ship coastal defense cruise missiles. You know, I find it I found it interesting in my last position that there was only one major Western nation in the world that didn't possess anti-ship coastal defense cruise missiles that could be fired from land, and that was the United States. So I felt that that would be a good capability 
for the Marines, particularly based on the threats to have. So I'm not going to comment any more on on that. You know, the the discussion is the discussion. It would be good if it could get resolved in some way, shape, or form. I do think it it should be open to debate. Bill Lynn, who was you know was supporting Al Gray when he was CG at the TMF at the Carolina MAGTAF, had all his discussions. I didn't particularly enjoy listening to Mr. Lynn because it was painful and I didn't agree with all the stuff and, you know, and, and, but at the same time, sometimes you need to hear something that takes you out of your comfort zone because it makes you think, you know, it was interesting after the desert shield, desert storm, there was a big move to turn the Marine Corps into a uh, ground based armored force. There was a proposal for force structure to have this armored regiment out at 29 Palms. We were going to buy like a 500 striker-like vehicles to give mobility to the force. And it was on and on and on. And, and General Mundy was the, uh, General Gray gave up the commandancy and General Mundy was the commandant. And there's all sorts of discussion about that. And then the Marine Corps kind of got consumed in the tail hook thing. And we had to go back and go through basic core values training. There's a few people out there who might be listening and remember those days. But, you know, I wrote, a, I remember I wrote a letter to the Gazette basically criticizing some of the force proposals that were on the table. And they published it. They published it. I mean, I used to write a lot for the Gazette when I was a younger officer. And I started writing up again because I didn't see anybody. Some of the younger guys were calling the leadership out saying, hey, you don't, you're not commenting because you're not reading this thing. Well, I'm reading it. And I remember... This true story. So I was a battalion commander at 29 Palms because I believe we already had an armored regiment at 29 Palms. We had a tank battalion. We had an LA, LAI, LAR battalion. We had an artillery battalion. We had three infantry battalions. We had an Amtrak company. So we had the ability to mount up a battalion. We had we had towed artillery, one nine or eights. We had tanks. They were now M1s or transitioning to M1s. We had LAVs. So we had an armored regiment. We didn't need to create a separate structure. We just needed to be created into a cohesive unit. But the Marine Corps historically has, you know, organized the force to try to maintain and task organize the force to operate, which I don't think is a bad thing. That's why you don't want every infantry battalion to have their own DS arty battery, because we did that with recon once after we did that after desert shield desert storm because we didn't think recon battalion was val valuable we gave every regiment their own recon company and pretty soon all the skills in reconnaissance went away once because you need that daddy rabbit mommy rabbit at the top to provide the training and the leadership and the management of a force and then you can break it down okay but that's another subject anyway so i wrote this letter and we went down to El Toro. We did a raid on San Clemente Island. We drove down to Pendleton and we were doing training for one of the companies that was going on UDP. And I got this, we had an HF shot every day up to 29. And I got a note said, call this number. And I'd worked at headquarters Marine Corps. And I knew that number was a commandant's phone. So I went in dutifully. I went into Margarita. I got on the, on the Audubon line, called back, was told by one of the, the, the senior MA to the commandant. The commandant wants to talk to you about the letter you wrote to the Gazette. And I'm like, yes, sir. He said, call back tomorrow at two o'clock. And I'm like, letter I wrote to the Gazette. Letter I wrote, what letter did I write to the Gazette? So I got to go find a copy of the Gazette. And then I read it. And I went, it was pretty critical. 
of what was going on, you know, signed Lieutenant Colonel Mellon. So I called back and General Money got on the phone and as he always was, it's like, you know, how you doing, Bob? Good to hear your voice. How's your family? Hey, oh, sir, thank you. I'm they're fine. Thank you for asking. Hey, I just read this letter he wrote in the Gazette. Um, you know, I'm in kind of a high stakes poker game back here in DC, trying to figure out our force structure. And, and I really don't need this type of input. So he's basically saying, hey, Neller, have a nice hot cuppa in a very gentlemanly kind way. And I didn't mean to poke the comment out in the eye. So he he made his point and I said, yes, sir, I'm sorry I didn't. He says, no, 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 no. We need everybody to be thinking about different things. We need everybody to be thinking outside the box. We need, I need, you know, it's just, right now is just not a good time. Yes, sir. I said, okay, have a nice day, click. But the Gazette published it. So I, I in the Gazette, and the Marine Corps University, and, and they've always been, it's an academic forum. It's as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or ethical, you know, we're going to let people come in and talk about stuff that's, that it's professional. And, you know, I remember going back as the commandant, we had a, there was a symposium at Marine Corps University and a, an officer got up who had been in Afghanistan and his unit had, had a real tough go. And he basically beat me up because he didn't have PRED coverage. And fair point, you know, so we are who we are. Marines speak truth to power, right? So I, I think having this discussion is okay. I wish it had stayed within our professional journals and our professional forums, but, you know, there there's a lot of ink out there, kind of like there was with the maneuver warfare discussion. People writing books like, okay, so let's have the debate. Let's have the debate. Let's have the discussion. And at the end of the day, the force will do what it always does. They'll take the capabilities they have and the resources they have, and they'll go out there and they'll train their asses off and they'll get ready to go do the next mission. Sir, could you give your thoughts on the concept of stand-in forces? You know, I, I'm not, I've read the, the document. The Naval force has always been the forward deployed tripwire for the U.S. military. The term that's been used in other documents is called the contact zone. So naval forces historically are in the contact zone every day. They have to go out there and move around, whether they're underway or underway and ashore. They're in the contact zone. They're in an area, particularly in the Western Pacific, where if something went bump in the night, you know, they could be involved in a contest immediately. So the idea that we're out there is nothing new. It's nothing new. I mean, we used to be focused on the MED. There used to be a Marine Expeditionary Unit in the MED 365 days a year until the end of the Soviet Union. Now there's probably needs to be a West Coast MU in the MED or in the, in the Western Pacific 365 days a year. Ideally, there would be one off the East Coast on the Eastern MED that could flex to you know Europe or the Middle East and let the West Coast focused on the Pacific. That's doable within the current force structure and force design if the Navy could support the shipping. But that's probably not going to happen here in the near term, unfortunately. So I don't, you know, I'm not sure that, that stand-in forces is fundamentally that much different than what we've done in the past. Although I believe, we, you know, the idea that distributed operations, small teams moving around, whether they be on smaller ships, or 
in other areas are distributed. You know, like I said, we've been talking about distributed ops for years and years and years. Sure. So this is not, I mean, it's a different name, okay? But when we talked about distributed ops before, there was a lot of concern because, okay, they're going to get isolated. They're going to get cut off. How do we sustain them? How do we do the logistics? How do they call for fires? How do we move them? How many can we have? You know, when we wrote document, you know, they wrote the land, the new landing party manual, exponentially advanced based operations, littoral ops in a contested environment, try to lay this all out as a conceptual thing. And now we're going to experiment and figure it out. And I think that's where we are now. That's where you get into the light amphibious warship or whatever we're calling it now, or some way you got to have some way to move. You got to have, you got to put maneuver into this and you've got to be able to, you know, it's the hide and find game. So nothing's foolproof. There's nothing that's where there's no risk. And then you get in the discussion of how likely is this going to happen? Well, then the other discussion is, well, if we have this capability, how likely do we deter it from happening? I haven't heard much talk about that. I mean, do you think that the Chinese are paying attention to what the Marine Corps is doing in the Pacific? Oh, yeah. They are not foolish people. So is that advantageous to us, to the United States, to the commander of Indo-PACOM now? Admiral uh, Aquilino. Oh, yeah. I mean, if Aquilino didn't like this, he would probably tell the Marine Corps, you don't do this. This is an add to my combat capability. Now, he should be concerned about the paucity of amphibious lift and the ability to move this force around. But, I mean, that's, that's what we do. I thought that was our mission, to seize and secure advanced naval bases in support of the naval campaign. That's the law, right? Just like the law says three divisions and three wings and associated logistics. That's the law. So we'll see. One regiment, checking it out. We'll see if it survives the you know first contact with experimentation. And there should be some lessons. They were just at 29 Palms. We'll see how it went. So I'd like to talk about access and logistics. So what's your response to the statement? Quote, Force Design 2030 will live and die on access to airfields, ports, and islands. Well, access to airspace, sea space, ports, airfields, I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, that's one of the reasons you need partner. That's why the second tenet of the National Defense Strategy in 2018 and the current strategy, and I just read a memo from the current SecDef, he talks about the same thing. That's why you have partnerships and alliances that give you access and basing and overflight rights. All right. So yeah, I mean, if, if you we don't want another home game. Okay. We don't want every game we play is an away game. So we have to have access. We've got to deploy the force. And we have not had anyone contest our deployments since World War II. So then there's people thinking about this. I know that, but contested deployment of the force requires protection of the force, and a place to, that you can go to where it's secure. I mean, right now, there's a lot of discussion about maritime preposition force, what's its viability. And the whole concept of MPF was that, you know, I can deliver a brigade's worth of equipment in the Marines and be combat ready in, in 10 days, given I have a secure port and a secure airfield. Okay, where in the world are you going to be secure now? And if you're trying to offload within the first island chain, I mean, if we're going to do an MPF operation anywhere where you're in the uh, 
the strike zone of the adversary's weapon system, even if it's before the onset of official hostilities, it creates problems. And we haven't had to worry about that. You know, we offloaded in Iraq, night in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We offloaded for the beginning of OIF. Nothing that anybody could do about it, right? Nothing. That's the reason the Army is reestablishing prepost sets on the continent in Europe. And they used to have huge prepost sets because they knew they probably weren't going to be able to get the gear across the Atlantic Ocean because of the Soviet submarine threat. Hmm. So how are we going to get stuff across the Pacific if we can't screen? Which is why, you know, I jokingly said, and I've been quoted, you know, what's my what's my number one priority? More submarines, more attack submarines, because that's how I'm going to get to where I need to go. And that's how we're going to defeat. That's how we're going to win the, the naval fight, the Navy fight, the submarines. If I could, sir, what do you make of the the Chinese essentially buying off the Solomons? You know, I, I was there for the 75th anniversary of Guadalcanal. And there was discussion then they were the Solomons. The capital is there on Guadalcanal. And they were hosting the some game, some athletic games for that Micronesia or something like that. And the Chinese were paying the bill. I believe that, you know, in the Solomons at one time were one of the few countries that were still being, had recognized Taiwan as China, but the Chinese bought them off. But I do believe the United States was guilty, at least previously, of not paying enough attention to that part of the world. I think that's changed. I mean, we actually have an ambassador now to the Solomons. At least someone has been appointed. The ambassador used to be in Papua New Guinea, and, and that ambassador had to cover this entire area. I mean, the Solomon Islands is like 100 islands, Guadalcanal being the largest of them. But I do believe that that's been walked back. It was one political leader there, the prime minister, I think. The Australians have a huge amount of influence there because they've been involved there with police due to some civil unrest in the country. And I think that that's hopefully been resolved where the Chinese have not locked that thing up. But they're everywhere. I mean, I just read today. I mean, they've built a, a space tracking station in Argentina, and that's been criticized. And the, um, and the Argentinian ambassador, you know, is pushing back on the United States that the Chinese are going to build a fighter jet factory in Argentina. The Chinese are everywhere with big bags of money, and they don't care about human rights or the uh, autocracy of your government. We should be as concerned about their presence in this hemisphere. This hemisphere is what you know is called interior lines. This is my personal view. I think there was a hearing today where Admiral General Richardson, the Southcom commander, was testifying, and she, you know, opining about this Chinese influence in this region. And you know, the United States is a big country. We we could pay more attention to this hemisphere with investment and education and medical stuff, because we don't need to be looking behind us when we're trying to project power out. And that's what the Chinese are trying to make us do. You know, they're buying up. I mean, the map is out there. You've all seen it. All the port concessions they own, trying to build railroads. So in the Solomons, is just another place where, they're, where they've gone. And we've, I think we've pushed back successfully on that. But we need to do that everywhere. And again, I've written, and I mean, there's the Chinese are the Chinese. You know, I don't think war is inevitable. 
and we need to find common ground with them. And it's not good to be, you know, beating up everybody. And, and I know Rep Gallagher has his commission or his uh, his committee on China, which is good because the Chinese need to be held accountable. But at the same time, there's got to be an effort, a diplomatic effort to find common ground. I mean, they do all sorts of, I mean, other than economic and, and uh, technical espionage. I mean, the, the biggest thing they do that affects the economies of the world is they just, they strip mine the fisheries of the world because they have a, although a, a decreasing population, they have a huge population and they have to feed them. And they're not, they are not signatories to very many conventions on, con, on uh, conservation of the sea. Of course, the United States is not the paragon of all virtue in the signing of conventions on the law of the sea. So I'm concerned about the Solomons, but I think they've walked that back, but they, we need to be paying attention and we can't be everywhere. I mean, I know the Biden administration and, and I is rightfully trying to pay some attention to what's going on in Africa. But, you know, we're competitors. We're competitors with China, economic, diplomatic, informational competitors. Militarily, we just need to be paying attention to what they're doing. Your comments about China remind me of something I'd heard you say in a speech, and it was that the Chinese own the companies that operate both ends of the Panama Canal. And I thought I, I would know something like that, but uh, it was news to me. And I thought, holy crap, that's uh, concerning, especially if there were conflict and we needed to move troops and forces in that area. It just makes me wonder about how other Chinese business interests could be used in, in a military fashion the world over and how that might affect Operation. I think it goes without saying. Yeah. I mean, it's very simple. You can go on open press and say, show, you know, if you want the chat bot GBT or whatever it is and says, show me the, give me a map with all the Chinese economic involvements in Europe and Africa. Show me all the airfields or the ports where they, they have commercial co uh, control of the port concession. Show me where they built railroads and road infrastructure. Show me where they have mining and they're trying to do mining for minerals. Show me, I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And where they have given, you know, as, as the former secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer would say adherence is they have operationalized the use of capital globally. And these countries are poor. And, you know, they may not be the most strongest, most liberal democratic governments okay but at the same time the united states can sometimes make it really hard to be our friend nations don't have friends they have interests so yes we should hold people accountable for what they do that's a violation of international law but at the same time for the thing that you brought up earlier we need access access, overflight, influence, economic, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. But, you know, that's that's one view of how the international involvement of the United States should be. There's others that say, to heck with all these people, we should just take care of what's happening here in the United States. Sort of a more isolationist perspective. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's, that's always been there and it's, it's there today. Yeah. But that'll, that's why we have elections. So to bring it back to the Marine Corps, in an interview while you were coming out, you said, 
quote, to me, the number one critical vulnerability of the US military is the network, their reliance on the network to be able to get access to GPS, position, navigation, and timing. That's also our critical capability. If we have all that, that's a, and the audio got kind of messed up. So I think you said a lethal force. That's a lethal force. So how do you protect it and deny the enemy theirs? Because if you can do that, you're probably going to be successful. If they can deny you yours and protect theirs, they're going to kick your ass. Since you've left the service, does it seem we've become more dependent on GPS, more dependent on the network? Or has there been some leavening, some some balance? You know, it's difficult to make an observation when you're on the outside looking in. Sure. But from what I've read and what I've gleaned from talking to people, I think that there's been a greater recognition of the, you know, the criticality. You know, if you use the center of gravity analysis of maneuvers, you know, what's the critical capability of what is it about my adversary that concerns me the most? What is it? What capabilities do I have to protect and what do I need to deny them? I think there's been a uh, a significant effort of figuring out how to protect our network. You see much more discussion, although uh, on the military side, I think General Nakasone and his predecessors at NSA Cybercom have done a pretty good job of hardening the network, and there's ways to do that. It's not foolproof. I mean, you read every day about hackers getting into different commercial networks and stealing personal information. And so and you read about how the you know the Ukrainians have been able to keep their network up, and so there's you know to me it, it begins and ends with the network. And Space Force's job and Space Comm's job is to do the is to maintain the, the celestial network so that we have communications governing space base. I think there's going to be a change in how this is done as as quantum computing comes up. I just read some stuff from Peter Singer about that. And so quantum computing will give you a much more reliable, faster, capable network than what we have now. So we need to really invest in that capability. But, you know, we build a system based on an assumption that the network is going to be accessible. And if it's not, you know, airplanes can still fly, but, you know, they're not going to be able to use GPS for navigation, you know, the timing of our radios for the encryption all that. I mean, the first fight in the war is going to be in space. You know, and if I can take away your network and shut down your systems, whether it be SCADA systems to control power or water or finances, I don't have to fire a shot. I firmly believe that. And I, I think they're, and I'm not a prophet. I mean, I mean, this is nothing new. I just said it because I thought it was important, which is why, you know, reliable, residual, replaceable, reestablishable networks has got to be probably right at the top of the list as far as things you have to do as capability. And I think, I believe that the military and the commercial world, although they seem to be slow because it's expensive, you got to pay for this, is recognizing that this is important. You mentioned Ukraine a few moments ago and the war in Ukraine has played a large role in the conversations on force design. How has Ukraine affected your thoughts on warfare? And do you think that war is indicative of what we'll see in the future? I don't know if it, any war is going to give you a window into what the next war is going to be. They're all going to be different. And you don't know what capabilities the adversary is going to have or what you have that's going to work or not work. I think Ukraine's kind of a, you know, something old and something new, something borrowed. 
what's that for the for the bride, right? I, yeah, gold, I know what you're referencing. New, something it's... borrowed, something blue. So you see a at face value kind of a static trench warfare, but at the same time you see a lot of complicated technical lawyer and munitions, lots of use of air defense, counter battery defense. I mean, I guess the Russians launched a whole bunch of missiles and overwhelmed the uh, Ukrainian defenses. I'm sure the Ukrainians shot down a whole bunch of them. You know, so I, I think it's a window into some of the. I mean, to me, the number one takeaway from this is that if you're going to be successful, you got to have a big pile of ammo. And you got to have a really highly trained, smart, capable force that has good gear. So it's proven that, you know, American weapon systems are effective. And it's proven that if you really train hard and you pick really good people to be in those particular units, they're going to be successful. And that conscript force is not going to be effective on a modern battlefield. And there will be a huge amount of ammunition consumption with a large fight like this. So. I think the U.S. force is doing the right things to get ready, uh, whether we'll have enough, enough of a stockpile of weapons, which has always been an issue, particularly complicated precision weapons that are really expensive and the industrial base is just not that big. That's really where we need to be spending some money. How small can the force be to where it's survivable if it starts to take casualties? You know, obviously the forces are not going to get any bigger. I don't see them getting bigger because they're too expensive. And they're too hard to recruit. Recruiting is a whole big problem now in the world that we live in. So those are the things. Obviously, huge consumption of ammo, so you have to have a big stockpile, particularly precision weapons. The training of your force is very, very, very important because conscript forces that don't have any training are just cannon fodder. And that you see the application of high-tech loitering munitions, UAS to do targeting, Intelligence collection, the ability to precision target has made the Ukrainians effective and fight way above their weight against a very large and fairly clumsy opponent, but has the willingness to spend their people in mass and accept casualties and just deal with it. Mm -hmm. Sir, I want to thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us. I think we accomplished the goal I had set out for us, which was to bring some light to the topic of Force Design 2030. Very much appreciate you making the time to do this and excited to share our chat with the Warfighting Society. As I close all my interviews, I'd like to ask, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Well, for those of you that are still serving and wearing the uniform today, thanks for doing what you're doing. There's life at the other end, but it's not the same. Uh, there's no way to replicate the esprit and the camaraderie. And I was told this a long time ago. I mean, it, it, the money is never going to be enough to pay you for what you do and what your families do. So I, I just want to thank you for your service. I know that sounds kind of trite and uh, colloquial and people say it, but they could say other things. So don't ever take that for granted. And I appreciate the opportunity, you know, continue to study, continue to learn education, just like your fitness is a lifelong endeavor. So you just can't stop. But again, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Sir, thank you very much.